again for the invitation and the opportunity. Uh, I'm thankful for your pastor for uh, a long time friendship over many years, and yet I only get to see him occasionally, and then when I come and visit, he goes off on holiday. Uh, but I, no, I did get to see him uh, 10 days ago, was it, uh, at the General Assembly. So I was able to see him in Memphis uh, when I was there briefly, and uh, so I was glad to reconnect uh, with your pastor and uh, just rejoice in what you are doing, your witness here, uh, as you uh, join with us and share with us in our witness among the ancient people. Um, as was said, please uh, do take the materials, uh, make my uh, homeward journey, yes, 24 to 26 hours of drive time back to Arkansas, uh, make my gas mileage a little better by you know, taking a lot of stuff there. Um, again, thank you for your support, for your prayers. My task in the Word is um, to bring that burden, to bring that burden for Jewish mission before the Lord's people. In our Sunday school hour, we presented what we do, what we do in, in terms of uh, leading by example, as I said, in evangelism, uh, but also resourcing and helping the church to be the church. Now we want to do that by way of opening the Word. And so would you please turn with me to Ezekiel 36, and we're going to read together uh, from Ezekiel 36, 21. 21 from Ezekiel 36. And we'll read through to verse 36. So, so 21 to 36 from Ezekiel 36. Let us hear the word of God. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes." I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who pass by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. 
Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Amen. May the Lord instruct us from his holy word. The title that I've given to the sermon is The Puritan Hope. If I was to give you a subtitle, it's Why I Am a Kingdom Optimist and Why You Should Be Also. I want us to leave this place with a smile, with joy in the Lord, and with that thrill of kingdom labor. I fear some of our churches and some uh, within ourselves have a kind of an oppressed, a depressed outlook on the world and life. Today's day is just like a day in Northern Ireland, I'll have you say. It's gray. And I think sometimes um, we have the outlook pertaining to the kingdom as a little gray. I want us to see the sunshine. We prayed earlier our Father in heaven. That at the very least should make us optimistic. We prayed, hallowed be your name. That's our desire and our, and our thrill and our delight that his name would be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you really pray that? Then you should be a kingdom optimist. I have a young fellow in our congregation back home in Arkansas, and, and occasionally we have a, a theological discussion. He, he will simply say, you know, I, I wish I had your optimism, but I just don't see it. Uh, and by that he means not just I don't see it in the Word, I don't see it in Scripture is, is his uh, uh, response. And I said, well, do you not pray the Lord's Prayer? If it's all doom and gloom, if it's all downhill, why did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come. Is it a pointless exercise? For the kingship of Christ upon earth as it is in heaven. Of course it is in heaven. But we're taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. So I want us to look at Ezekiel 36, and I'm going to parallel it. We didn't read it, but I parallel it with Romans 11. We will dip into there a little bit as well to prove the, the biblical nature of gospel hopefulness, kingdom optimism, and especially with regard to our labors uh, in the world of Jewish mission. Now, without doing in-depth exegesis, I'll let, leave that for the local pastor to do the difficult spade work, but I, I simply want to suggest that this passage of Ezekiel 36, it has been fulfilled, but not fully filled. And getting the distinction, therein lies the challenge. But there are scriptural passages uh, particularly prophetic scriptural passages that we can say are fulfilled, but not fully filled. 
And so I want us to think of this passage in that light. Didn't this come to pass at the return from exile? We sang Psalm 126. When we returned from exile, we were like men who dreamed. The Lord brought us back, brought the exiles from Babylon. Didn't didn't this happen then? The, The building of the second temple... Was, was that what was prophesied? We will say, yes, it's fulfilled, but not fully. Fast forward to the conversation that Jesus had with that Jewish ruler, Nicodemus. Nicodemus couldn't get his head around Jesus, saying, you must be born anothen from above. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is wondering, do I have to go through the birth process all again? no. It's, it's Ezekiel 36, Nicodemus. Don't you read your Bible? You are Israel's teacher, and you don't know these things, Nicodemus. So was Ezekiel 36 fulfilled when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus? Yes, but not fully. And then more particularly, in, in the extension of that in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit... And the Spirit being put within them, that's what we read here. Was it fulfilled on Acts 2? Yes, but not fully. Because the Jewish lawyer, Paul, would see the expansion of the Jewish remnant believing community into Gentile territory, and he would write of this in his letters, and the Lord would show him that he's not done with Israel. And in particular, the letter to the Romans and 9 through 11, and I'm not going to read it all, but just a few verses from Romans, 9, uh, Romans 11, if we can turn there and uh, take up from verse 23. Romans eleven twenty-three. Even they, the Jewish people, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, Jewish and Gentile brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a partial, not complete, hardening. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, that is written, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There seems to be something very deliberate and very intentional and very definite. This will be my covenant when I take away their sins. And then verse 29 The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, unable to be taken back. God will do what God will do. God will do what God has said he will do. Therefore, I'm a kingdom optimist. As I await God's doing, I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know if it's a thousand years from now, I don't know if it's in the next moments. But I read that God will do what God will do. So let's return to Ezekiel 36 and see what is prophesied and paralleling it with the Romans 11. I really, we have so much in the text there, but I want to really focus on on four areas of the Lord's deliberate um, 
concern and action. And so we read in verses 21 and 22, I had concern. In verses 23 to 25, he says, I will vindicate. In 26 to 32, we read, I will act. And then 33 to 36, we read, I will do it. And I hope you see what I'm, where I'm going with this. This whole passage is drenched with the I am. And I will. And indeed, the very next chapter, which we have a, a sermon from Spurgeon on the table, the Valley of Dry Bones. And so if you want a, a follow-up to this sermon, take Spurgeon, um, and, which I really see as the illustration or the vision of this passage as it comes to fulfillment. And, you know, the Valley of Dry Bones, preach to the bones and pray for the wind, and it, there, there, there rises a mighty army. So what is Jewish mission all about but preaching to bones and praying for the wind? And the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 happens as we have it in vision in 37. So all of that uh, by way of background and, and uh, introduction. Let's get in to the first point. I had concern. I had concern. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In that prayer, we are concerned. We are concerned for the hallowing of the Lord's name. And I want really us to pray more in that light. I, I fear, self-included, that our prayers are so self-obsessed. As is often said, some of our prayer meetings are organ recitals. We talk about this medical condition and that medical condition and this organ and that organ, and it's an organ recital. Are we concerned for the Lord's honor, for the Lord's name? Because that's how we're taught to pray. But this is what we're taught here, is that he has concern. And so we're in good company. When we pray for the hallowing, when we pray for the, thy kingdom to come and thy will to be done, Father, your name is profaned. Father, there is a despisal of all things divine. Father, there is a ridiculing of God, a blasphemy, a blaspheming the divine order, the murdering of your image in the womb, the perverting of your order of man and woman in all manner of gender fluidity and promoting that insanity among children. Heaven, we have a problem. The honor of your name, Lord. And what does he answer? I have concern. It's going to stop. So he said to the house of Israel, the profanation of his name among the nations from the house of Israel, it's going to stop. Because I have concern for my name. And the reason I'm a kingdom optimist is because God is concerned, whether that be a defiled ancient land, a defiled ancient people, a defiled created order, a defiled man in our day, God will have his honor. And we need to pause on that. And maybe we don't pause often enough in our lives, in our very busy 21st century lives. 
Uh, I read in, in Revelation 8 about the opening of the uh, seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for half an hour. I, 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 I don't understand what that means. I don't understand what a lot of revelation means, but I don't understand what there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Can you think of that? There was a, there was a pause. There was a recognition that God will have his honor. God has concern. I have 13, soon to be 14 grandchildren. Well, I have 14 grandchildren, one in the womb. And when we have our grandchildren over at our home, and in fact, sometimes they all get together. Last Christmas, I think, was the last time. It wasn't a lot of silence. <laughs> it's a noisy time, and it's fun, and it's wonderful, and it's exhausting. <laughs> and then they go. Grandparents, you know that. And it's quiet. There's silence. I think we could do well with a little more silence, at least on spiritual things, in the frenetic, crazy world in which we live. Just, I have concern. That's a good pause. And I think, again, the apostle had a similar conflict whenever uh, he was writing the book of Romans, and we don't, we're not going to get into all of that, but you remember in, as he's proceeding through the gospel in Romans 1 through 8, and the wonderful chapter 8 begins with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It ends, there is no separation, nothing, nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then suddenly we come into Romans 9, and what happens? The apostle puts his pen down and says, Lord, I've got a problem. Nothing shall separate, but my people are separate. My people, your, your people are separate. I have concern. I am, Paul says in Romans 9, I have great anguish in my heart for my people, the Israelites, my brethren according to the flesh. Theirs are the covenants. Theirs the giving of the law. Theirs the Shekinah glory. From them the Christ. What's going on, Lord? I've got concern. And the Lord gives the answer. Romans 9 through 11. Read it for your afternoon homework. Ian Murray, writing in the classic book, I'm sorry, I need to get more copies. I don't have it on the bookstall, but it's called The Puritan Hope. Go get it off uh, where you get your good books. <laughs> Banner of Truth, Puritan Hope. And Ian Murray says this, Puritan thought never gave way to the feeling that because the condition of the world was so deplorable that the second coming of Christ was the only hope for mankind. In other words, the Puritans never were people who thought, well, just got to get out of here. In their minds, says Murray, to have done so would have been to fall into unbelief with regard to the promised results of the first coming. In other words, because the belief that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners will be saved. And the Puritans knew that. And they went forward in hope, insulting the earth. There are promised results of the first coming. Otherwise, Lord, why don't you just bring another flood? Oh, you promised not to do that. And we know something about a rainbow and that. Or why don't you just bring another cosmic storm upon modern Sodom and Gomorrah? No. 
because his first coming was to usher in the kingdom. Christ is king. Every inch of this earth is his. He has plundered the goods of the strong man. He has bound the strong man. He is plundering his goods. Think about it. When this gospel came to first century Judea, when this gospel came to a little insignificant ancient people, my Scots-Irish ancestors were in total darkness. They knew nothing of the God of Israel. But suddenly, the Lord came to his temple. Suddenly, the new covenant of God and the it is finished of Calvary. And that message went forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even unto the ends of the earth. And the enchained nations of the world were hearing about a Jewish Messiah. The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Why? Because he has concern. I must move swiftly on. Secondly, I want to look at the vindication of his holy name in Israel. He said, I will vindicate. We find that in verses 23 to 25. I will vindicate. And note the order here. God will vindicate in bringing holiness to his ancient people. In bringing godliness to his ancient people who presently are profaning his name. God's reviving of his ancient people is for his glory. Ian Duguid, a commentator on Ezekiel, he says this, if there had been no other reasoning involved for God than the necessity of dealing with Israel's sin, permanent wrath would have sufficed. In other words, God could simply have said, I'm done with you, and permanent wrath would have sufficed. But that would not be vindicating his name. He, by his name, had entered into covenant with them. They were profaning it. They were breaking it. He needed, if we can use that term, to vindicate his name. And so in Dugud continues, because of that sovereign irrevocable act, mercy not only may, but must be shown to Israel. Mercy must be shown to Israel because he has sworn. And we ask the question, has this been fulfilled? Yes, to some degree, Acts 2, but not fully filled. So we read in Romans 11, Israel has experienced a hardening in part, a partial hardening. But God is able to graft them in again. He has the power to graft them in again. And so in these passages in Jeremiah, in these passages of, of Ezekiel, we, we have this expectation of a new covenant with the house of Israel and this rebirth, not of a piece of dirt, but the rebirth of the people in love for their Lord and their Messiah. Have we lost that hope? Have we lost that sense of anticipation and that expectation? Remember, it was William Carey said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. The Puritans, if nothing else, were men of hope, Ian Murray writes also. It colored the spiritual thought of the American colonies. 
It taught men to expect great outpourings. It prepared the way to the new age of world missions. But Murray continues, today the church no longer appears before men as a world-transforming power. Gone, gone are the anticipations. Lost, lost it. And why? Why? When, when, when God has concern, when God will vindicate, this is not a world from which we need to escape. This is the property of Christ. Hallow your name, Lord. A little brief history lesson, and it has to be very brief. The 16th century, that century of grace-filled reformation in the midst of, of the darkness of Romanism selling salvation, the Lord did not bring His wrath. Instead, He brought His mercy in a Martin Luther and a Calvin and a Knox and so on. 16th century, a grace-filled century of Reformation. 17th century, a century of expectation. What are you going to do now, Lord? And despite modern narratives the expansion into the colonies, and you well know this, I trust, was the churches, the, the pilgrim fathers, conquering lands for Christ. Fast forward to the 18th century, and we have further hope, and that hope comes to fulfillment. We have times of great awakenings, revival, move into the 19th century, and you've got the explosion of world missions, including our own 1842. That Puritan hope, that expectation, that anticipation, and particularly pertaining to Israel, God is concerned. God will vindicate. All of this theology was ushering forth in, in passionate, selfless, sacrificial labor to the ends of the earth. What happened in the 19th century, early 20th century? Liberalism, pessimism, and a new theology, dare I say it. A new theology that had a new idea, an escape plan from the wreck of the world, a secret rapture. Well, not heaven, we do have a problem. We need to get out of this world. And all we need to do is get people to get their ticket. Fast forward with the reduced theology in that, and you have easy believism. Walk the aisle, sign the card, get your ticket, and we're just ready to go. And now we sing, one bright morning when the sun is shining, I'll fly away. Where is the vindication of God? Alexander Duff, Scottish theologian, he said, we can afford to work in faith for omnipotence is pledged to fulfill the promise. Omnipotence is pledged. Are we claiming that promise? Are we believing that promise in faith to go into the world and preach the gospel? Or are we just waiting for our flyaway time? God has concern. God will vindicate. And God will act. Verses 26 to 32, God will act. Again, haven't time, but in the mass 
of idolatrous Israel, what do we read here? We read, I will take, I will gather, I will bring, I will sprinkle, I will cleanse, I will give, I will put, I will cause, I will deliver. Verse 32, I will act. This is a, a, an act of godly transformation of a people out of his own free grace. This is Jewish revival. This is Jewish redemption. This is saving and sanctifying. This is Israel's rebirth. This is the valley of dry bones coming to life by the preached uh, word to the bones and the praying for the wind. And so we say, is it fulfilled fully? No. And this is Romans 11 in parallel. This is what the Puritans long for. This is why we have it even in our Westminster standards, praying for Jewish evangelism from the 1640s. This is not a fascination with a restoration to a piece of dirt. There seems to be a fascination with that. This is a restoration to their Lord that we're talking about. The land is a complicated issue, and indeed it's included in here. I'm not going to go down that at this point in time, but I want us to focus on the people and 42% of the people are living here. So let's make this application right to our home shores, right to our land here. Sometimes people ask me, oh, do you go to Israel often? And I say, no, I haven't been there in 40 years. I meet my Israeli colleagues, and I, I, I have interaction uh, across, the, uh, across the pond, as it were. But I haven't visited the land. My burden coming from Northern Ireland with a Scots-Irish burden, according to the Scripture, my burden is Jewish America, with six million Jewish people surrounding, uh, or being surrounded by how many Christians? 10, 20, 30 million Christians. Depends how conservatively we do the numbers. But this is where God has placed us. And this is the mission God has called us to, which I, again, emphasize in the Sunday school hour. It's not for the experts to do it. It's for all of us to do it. But if we read this in Scripture that God will do this, how does he do it? He does it through his own agents. He does it through you and me. But the question is, am I optimistic about their coming to faith? As much as ever. I've been in this 19 plus years. How will it happen? It will happen not because we just have the right tactic, but it'll become, it'll happen by the preached word. It will happen by one or two Jewish friends in your life hearing of Jesus from your lips. It'll be happening not by the missionary experts, but by the 30 million Christians. Alexander Duff I mentioned earlier, he was ordained in the Church of Scotland in August 1829. He was their first missionary. But he was no maverick independent. Ian Murray says his calling involved a new and comparatively untried concept, namely that the church herself is a missionary society. And I say a thousand times amen to that. Mission is from the church, through the church, unto the church. Jewish evangelism is not something that you pay the experts to bring about. It's by the whole church being armed. I, I, I use a little phrase, we are arming the church. What do I mean by that? Awakening, resourcing, and mobilizing. We want to awaken you. We're preached to, to awaken 
you to the reality of Jewish evangelism. We want to resource you. And then we want to mobilize you. And we'll go to the streets of Pittsburgh, or go to the streets of Cleveland, or go to Jersey, New Jersey, or we'll go to South Florida, or we'll go to the Northeast here and engage in whatever way we can. And we'll lead by example, but we will be mobilizing you because this mission, this Christian witness to Israel is your Christian witness to Israel. God has concern. God will vindicate. God will act. Are you optimistic about it? It's a challenge. It's difficult. We were talking in the Sunday school hour of, of how difficult it is to talk to Jewish people. I am way out of my comfort zone when I'm standing on the street corner in Pittsburgh. Put me here in the pulpit any day of the week, but in the street corner of Pittsburgh with Orthodox Jews walking past, I'm way out of comfort zone. But we've got to do it. Because we read in the scriptures, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. The appointed time has come, Psalm 102. Enough of our pessimism. Enough of our flyaway rapturology. Enough of our reformed monasticism where we hunker down because it's really terrible days we live in and we just have our little reformed monasteries where we teach ourselves the five points of Calvinism. We have a message to bring to the lost. And the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in divine sovereign favor, his concern and his vindication will overflow and he will act. That's the Puritan hope. And I'm a kingdom optimist and you should be too. Finally, briefly, verses 33 to 36 shows us the intention for the holy transformation of the world. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know, I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. You see, Jewish mission plays an important part in world mission. The great missionary leaders of the 19th century were also very greatly concerned for Jewish mission. Think of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor had his eyes on, on China, but he sent a check to the Mild May Mission to the Jews with a little note in it, Romans 1.16, to the Jew first. His view was, or his sight was on China, but he knew Jewish mission had a part in it, so he, he had gifting, or he, he gifted to the Mild May Mission to the Jews because Jewish mission has even an impact on world mission. And so we read in Romans 11, verse 12, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What does that mean? Well, they failed, and we got it. And we have the, the riches of Christ, but it's not over how much more will their full inclusion? Their full inclusion will be even greater riches to the Gentiles. And so it says in verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? Oh, their rejection meant reconciliation of, of world, nations of the world. But, but that's not the end. What will their rejection mean? What will their acceptance mean? Life from the dead which many of the Puritans believed 
meant world revival, and indeed the great awakenings were believed to be something of that. Professor Murray, John Murray, writes on these verses, there awaits the Gentiles gospel blessing far surpassing anything experienced during the period of Israel's apostasy. This unprecedented enrichment will be occasioned by the conversion of Israel on a scale commensurate with that of their earlier disobedience. In other words, John Murray is simply saying they disobeyed 99 point whatever percent, but there was a remnant. But their return will be on a scale similar. That's what the Puritans believed. That was the Puritan hope. Someone once said, 12 Jewish apostles turned the world upside down. What will it be like when 12 million of them turn? You see, I don't want to fly away. I want to see King Jesus reigning in the hearts of his blood brothers. Uh, just like Joseph, you remember the story of Joseph and, and his, his brothers came down and, and, and he was kept from recognizing them and they were cowering before him and they were living in fear and, and they were trying to make things right. And, and then he said, it, it's me, it's Joseph. And they were still in fear. No, no, it's me. And you see, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You think of that among the Jewish people? Yeah, you crucified me, along with the hands of the Gentile Romans. And I often say that, yes, it was the Italians killed Jesus because we have a Roman cross and Roman nails and Roman soldiers. But you meant it for evil, you Jewish leaders. But God meant it for good. And so my desire is that Jesus will reveal himself to his blood brother. It, it's me, Jesus. My young theologian at home may not be convinced. He may be the eternal pessimist. <laughs> but I read here, I have concern. I will vindicate. I will act. I will do it. And so when we are taught to pray for the salvation of Israel, we pray it in the light of thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us, like Carrie, expect great things and attempt great things. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the word with its many mysteries yet with its clarity of your divine, sovereign, omnipotent action in the saving of a people from every tribe and nation and indeed in the restoration of the ancient people for your sake and according to your irrevocable promises. And so we pray, Lord, as we see these things, may we indeed have a smile and may we look and long for that day when the name of Christ and the glory of God will be as widespread as the waters covering the sea. Give us hearts for kingdom work and send us forth among this lost, confused, and crazy world with the one true light and gospel 
of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. In his name we pray. Amen.